Hey ladies, welcome to the Losing Fat on Plants podcast. So happy to have you join me. My name is Jennifer and I'm a certified fat loss nutrition coach. I created this podcast for the menopausal woman who's maintaining a fully or partly plant-based diet, but is still struggling like I once did to lose fat because of cycling sugar binges. Menopausal weight gain is for real, and it's more than just calories in, calories out. Hormones, stress, and lifestyle are factors that can affect our appetite and complicate how we feel and behave around food, especially during our midlife. Come on, sister, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If your appetite has increased, you're craving foods high in sugar, and you can't stop overeating, then you're in the right place. Lady friend. Don't spend precious time feeling miserable about how you look and your weight. Instead, join me each week as I share evidence-based strategies to help you manage your sweet tooth on a plant-based diet while keeping it real. You don't have to give up your favorite desserts. Let me show you how you can enjoy sweets guilt-free while on your journey towards losing fat on plants. Hope to see you there. Take care. Hey, lady friend, welcome back to another episode of Losing Fat on Plants. Hope you're doing well. This is the eighth episode, and today we are going to be talking about if having a sweet tooth is a bad thing. What do you think? Do you think it's something we need to feel bad about? Well, I'm going to be talking about just that. As much as I hated to admit it in the past, I have now, in my midlife, embraced the fact that I have a sweet tooth. I never liked the idea of having a sweet tooth because I thought it meant that I wasn't health conscious enough. When we think of people who have a sweet tooth, we often have a picture in our minds of obese individuals who are sitting on the couch with a buffet of treats like cake, cookies, ice cream, chocolate bars, soda, and sugar-coated candy, eating until they fall into a comatose state, drooling at the mouth, completely having lost control of the body functions. And I never wanted to identify with this image. It is the complete opposite of how I want to be perceived and how I want to lead my life. I want to thrive and not be sedated on sugar and ultimately suffer from any food-related diseases that could have been avoided. So just the term sweet tooth alone would trigger negative thoughts and feelings, and I would picture myself losing control of my eating habits. But now I know that having a sweet tooth does not have to mean that you're not health conscious and that you have lost control of your eating and your body functions. Instead, it is a self-awareness of the food that you like to eat. And being self-aware helps you to be honest with your eating plans so that you do not set yourself up to fail. What do I mean by this? If you deny that you like sweets and you do not plan for them, whether that means to build sweets into your meal plans or to avoid sweets as your strategy, then you won't have a plan B when you eat off plan and you're likely to cast off any restraint once you are triggered. 
If you are aware that you like sweets, then you will either plan to incorporate them in a way that does not impact your fat loss goals, or you will plan to avoid them if this is your strategy by adjusting and balancing your macros so that you reduce your urges to overeat or a combination of of the both of those. So in this episode, I'm speaking to that menopausal woman who acknowledges her sweet tooth, whether she perceives it as good or bad. I want to first congratulate you for having the courage to admit that you are drawn to sugar. It certainly wasn't easy for me. Maybe you have only recently discovered that you crave sugar as a symptom of menopause, in which case you may not even feel comfortable at all admitting that you have this craving, but instead you feel frustrated that you've picked up an eating habit that you're not willing to accept and would actually like to get rid of. I definitely hear you and I'm aware of the struggle, but I want to encourage you to first start where you are and acknowledge that your body is now triggered to respond to sugar. And the best way to navigate this territory is to learn how to accommodate your sweet tooth without impacting your health. This will help you to avoid spiraling into self-induced sugar benches that will keep you hooked on sugar and not only sabotage your fat loss progress, but also put you at risk for chronic diseases. Sugar is a huge topic. The subject matter is so broad that I can't possibly cover everything in a single episode, which is one of the reasons why I actually created this podcast to address the various themes surrounding sugar and having a sweet tooth, particularly during menopause when cravings increase and we may start to feel even more as though we don't have our eating habits under control. So although I can't touch upon all things sugar in this episode, there will be plenty of episodes to come God willing, dealing with this subject either in one way or another. But for this episode, which will be part one of two episodes, I want to focus on what it means to have a sweet tooth and how much is too much. In the next episode, part two, I'll focus on how sugar works against our fat loss goals Can we satisfy our sweet tooth with foods other than refined sugar? And how do we build our meal plans to accommodate our sweet tooth without impacting our fat loss goals? And if you stay tuned till the end of both episodes, I'm going to answer the question whether or not having a sweet tooth is in fact a bad thing. So In my podcast and my fat loss program, when I refer to sugar, I'm referring mainly to refined or processed sugar as opposed to natural sugars in fruit or vegetables, non-starchy vegetables. The difference between natural and processed sugars is sugars that are processed leave nothing behind other than the sugar itself, which causes a rapid blood sugar spike and drop that eventually leads to overeating, weight gain, insulin, or insulin resistance, and ultimately diabetes and other chronic diseases. 
Natural sugars, on the other hand, have other components like water and fiber that help to slow down the digestion of sugar and therefore help to stabilize the blood sugar so that your insulin is not significantly triggered. So what does it mean to have a sweet tooth? I read that the word sweet tooth was used already in the 14th century, referring to having a fondness for foods that are tasty or delicious. The word used at that time was toothsome and eventually deviated to sweet tooth to describe an enjoyment for foods that were sweet. Now, whether that's true or not, sugar itself did not become a more common household product in the U.S. until the 1800s when the mason jar was invented and canning became a popular way to preserve food in jars for long periods of time, killing any microorganisms that can cause the food to spoil. And by the late 1800s, sugar turned from a luxury item to a staple on our grocery list once it became cheaper and more readily available. Today, the average American eats over 130 pounds of sugar each year. This is alarming, but it's simply a reflection of our behavior. If sugar is available and you have an affinity towards sugar, it's only a matter of time before you consume it. And the more it is readily available, the more likely you will consume it. Sugar's all around us. Most of the women in our generation were introduced to sugar at a very young age, I would say, when our taste buds and neural pathways were developing so we have actually been conditioned most of our lives to to like and eat sugar. We may not have overdosed on sugar as kids or young adults, but we most likely ate more than we should have, even if we had more moderate amounts. And therefore, it makes it much harder for us to completely wean from it today. Not everyone thinks that sugar is dangerous to our health and that those who eat sugar often are not likely to overconsume or even be addicted. But I think they're in denial and certainly in the minority. I believe 100% that a form of sugar addiction is possible, even if on a lower scale compared to other addictions. But regardless of how high on the addiction scale sugar may rank, our bodies can face similar consequences as drugs as a result of eating too much sugar and eventually lead to death. Do I also believe there are some false claims from people in the clean eating camp that shame others into believing that desserts in general are bad for our health? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Because I don't believe that all desserts are bad, either without or with sugar. But I do believe when you have a sweet tooth, you need to be aware of how sugar can affect your health and be responsible so that you can safeguard yourself from any health issues, as well as continue to progress with your fat loss goals. I want to share with you the criteria that are part of the DSM-5 diagnostic scale. I downloaded this from a website linked to Dr. Joan Ifler. Now, and I, and I believe that's how you pronounce her name. Dr. Joan Ifler 
was selected by the Oprah Winfrey Network as a food addiction specialist. And the DSM-5 diagnostic scale on one of her resource pages is the latest version of the American Psychiatric Association's gold standard text on the names, symptoms, and diagnostic features of every recognized mental illness, including addictions. So you can look up Dr. Ifler and check out her philosophy on her website if you're interested. She's a self-proclaimed recovering food addict, and she helps others who are suffering from food addiction as well. However, the purpose of me sharing the list with you is not to see if you're addicted to food or sugar, but so that you can familiarize yourself with the criteria as I did to see what the common behavior patterns are that demonstrate a significant dependency on food or sugar. If you think you may have reason for concern and you want to seek counseling or other support, then by all means, please feel free to look into it. But I'm not a medical expert and can't give advice. I'm simply sharing these criteria so that you can be aware of how food can affect not only your health, but your social or interpersonal relationships and your responsibilities at your job and within within your home as well, if it goes that far. So the food addiction criteria include, one, eating more than you were planning. Two, having tried to cut down or stop overeating certain foods and worrying that you are not able to. Three, having cravings or strong desires or urges to eat processed food. Four, eating so much that it's hard to fulfill major role obligations at work school, or home. Five, eating despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems. Six, giving up important social, occupational, or recreational activities because of eating. Seven, eating when it's hazardous or dangerous to do so. Eight, having psychological problems caused by eating, such as depression, anxiety, having difficulty sleeping or having disruptive fatigue, having physical problems or having physical problems made worse by eating. Nine, feeling that you need to eat more in order to get the same pleasure you initially had when you started. And the last one, 10, having withdrawal symptoms when you cut down or stopped overeating certain foods, such as sweating, racing heart, handshaking, trouble sleeping, trouble thinking, feeling depressed, feeling agitated, feeling anxious, feeling tired, and then eating to alleviate all of these feelings. So, Those are the criteria that are linked with mental disorders, including addictions like substance abuse, as well as food addiction or sugar addiction. You may have resonated with one or more criteria. And if you're like me, maybe even the majority out of the 10 points, I could relate to six of them. 
Now, I don't know how the medical experts would rate me on the scale. They could say that I'm addicted, and I could very well be according to their metrics, even though I don't see myself that way. But having a sweet tooth does not necessarily mean that you are addicted to sugar, despite what diet culture or health fanatics or medical experts may tell you. If you like sweet foods, it does not mean you are controlled by sweets. Do not focus on sugar and addiction and feeling that you have a bad habit because basically focusing on sugar as an addiction will not serve you. What will serve you as a menopausal woman with a sweet tooth is coming up with a plan to build healthy meals that are both nutritious and satisfying and serve your health and fat loss goals. Now, remember, if you have reason for concern to believe that you need to look further into whether or not you're addicted to, to sugar, then please seek support. It's, it's no laughing matter. It's a very serious concern that should be followed up on. But if you never had this concern, then don't feed yourself ideas that are not warranted. Don't get caught up with how others may judge your sweet tooth or shame you because of what you like to eat. Concentrate on nourishing yourself with nutritious foods that support your health and building routines that make that happen consistently so that you don't fall prey to bad food choices all the time. Choosing to indulge a few days of the week is much different than being trapped in a cycle of sugar binges. That distinction you should make before deciding whether or not you are addicted to sugar. Concentrating on nourishing meals will keep you focused on the right thing and not focused on the sugar itself. So what are nourishing meals? Well, as we discussed in the third and fourth episodes, the healthiest meals are those that are the least processed and contain the most vitamins and nutrients and therefore have plenty of non-starchy vegetables as well as starchy vegetables and fiber that keep you fuller longer with slow digesting foods that help to stabilize your blood sugar. So if slow digesting foods and a stable blood sugar is key, then you should reduce refined carbs, not whole food carbs, but refined carbs as much as possible, including sugar, which digests quickly, spikes your blood sugar and quickly drops, driving you to overeat. So if you need to reduce refined carbs, including sugar, as much as possible, how do you know when you've had enough sugar? A new World Health Organization guideline recommends adults and children reduce their daily intake of free sugars to less than 10% of their total energy intake. A further reduction to below 5% or roughly 25 grams, which is 
comparable to six teaspoons of sugar per day would provide additional health benefits. Now, I don't know if this is a new guideline. I think I've been aware of this this guideline for at least several years. But even the World Health Organization agrees that sugar itself, when eaten in low doses, is not harmful to us, but an overconsumption can be dangerous. Let's just go a little bit deeper into how sugar affects our health, aside from the criteria that we um, just discussed um, from the diagnostic scale. According to the book called Sugar, The Secret Killer, written by Dr. Med Kurt Mosetta, Thorsten Probost, Dr. Wolfgang Simon, and Anna Cavilios, there are irrefutable parallels between sugar and drugs. When we eat chocolate or ice cream, for example, our bodies excrete opioids, which have morphine-like effects that either stimulate, sedate, relieve pain, or numb our nervous system. And these processes can actually change our brains in long term. These are the same effects that are also caused by cocaine or heroin. The book goes on to explain that aside from causing weight gain, cavities, and diabetes, constant sugar consumption can ultimately lead to illnesses such as Alzheimer's and cancer, which originate in part from an imbalance in the blood sugar metabolism. The more often we eat sugar, our brains undergo chemical processes which reprogram our eating behavior and eventually induce cravings. And these cravings are led in part by the hormone dopamine, which reminds us that sugar was a rewarding experience in the past when we had it and will therefore give us the same pleasurable feeling if we eat it again we then begin to seek this pleasurable feeling more and more. Another hormone which plays a significant role in our eating habits is serotonin, which is responsible for regulating our mood. Low levels of serotonin are linked with depression. When we eat sugar, our serotonin levels increase, causing us to feel happy. Therefore, low levels of serotonin have the potential to drive us to eat more sugar. There are even further chemical interactions that perpetuate our sugar consumption, which in the long run can lead to numerous diseases and in some cases, death. Here are just some examples of how sugar affects our health. It causes constriction of blood vessels high blood pressure, diabetes, depression, cancer, Alzheimer's, thyroid dysfunction, chronic pain, and cavities. Many nutritionists believe that some sugar in the diet is fine, but it should not be eaten in abundance. The World Health Organization recommends no more than six teaspoons of sugar, as I mentioned before, each day. So six teaspoons of sugar each day is, according to the World Health Organization, acceptable, including natural sugars such as honey, 
maple syrup, or sugar found in fruits. Six teaspoons of sugar is roughly 25 grams or 100 calories, which is about 5 to 10% of a 2,000 to 2,500 calorie diet. More than six teaspoons of sugar per day on a regular basis can be harmful to our health. Checking the labels on packaged foods is necessary in order to monitor how much sugar you're consuming daily if you're eating the bulk of your foods from packaged goods. It's just as important to learn the names of sugar substitutes in order to catch any sugars that may may be hidden under different names on these packages. Let's take a look to see how much sugar is contained in foods that the average American typically eats on a daily basis. So I don't know if you are into sodas or sugar drinks, um, but I sort of listed a number of different sodas that are on the market and, you know, including iced tea and um, those health food drinks like Gatorade that we think might be okay, you know, as a sport drinks. And in some cases they, they can be in order to balance our electrolytes, but we should also be aware of how much sugar is in them so that we can make better food choices, I would say, in terms of how we should incorporate them or not incorporate them in our daily meal plans. So the first one is um, a one 12 ounce can of Coca-Cola that's about 375 milliliters contains 10 teaspoons or 40 grams of sugar. That's already over the daily limit. Um, I have the same for Fanta that also contains 10 teaspoons in the same amount. And then I have a one eight ounce can of Red Bull energy drink. It contains 6.8 teaspoons or 27.5 grams of sugar, less than the cans of Coca-Cola and Fanta, but that was also a smaller can. Um, And it's still over the six teaspoons daily limit. Then I have a 16 ounce can of V energy drink contains 13 teaspoons or 54 grams of sugar. Um, and then a 16 ounce can of Lipton iced tea contains six and a half teaspoons or 26 grams of sugar. And then Gatorade, a one eight ounce bottle of Gatorade. It's about 250 milliliters. So a quarter of a liter contains 14 teaspoons or 56 grams of sugar. So with sweet beverages, um, you know, depending on what you're into, it really does add up in terms of the calories and the amount of sugar that they, that they contain. So you're basically with just one drink, more than double in some cases over your daily limit. It's not worth it. Um, and unless, you know, you, it's, it's something that you choose or to indulge in once or twice during the week. So let's make the a similar comparison with fruit. Um, 
with fruit, those are the natural sugars. Um, now remember with fruit, it's not just sugar, but it's also water and fiber. So the sugar from the fruit digests much slower and does not cause our blood sugar to spike as quickly as the beverages, the sweet drinks do, for example. One banana contains three teaspoons or 12 grams of sugar, so it's less than the daily limit. Um, One cup of grapes contains five to six teaspoons, so under the daily limit. It's about 23 grams of sugar. Um, One cup of cherries contains 45 teaspoons, four to five teaspoons or 18 grams of sugar. One pear contains four teaspoons or 17 grams. Um, Now one mango contains 10.8 teaspoons or 45 grams. But again, remember, there's a lot of fiber in a mango. And although it is very sweet, it will spike your sugar less than let's say an energy drink or iced tea or, you know, Lipton iced tea or, or a Gatorade, for example. Um, okay. So let's just look to see if there's anything else on this list worth mentioning. So I know that people are, um, into cereals. So there is um, a metric here of 100 grams of popular oat bran cereals, which we generally consider to be healthy because it does contain, you know, oats and brands that have fiber that are very good for us. And for the most part, that is a, a, you know, relatively healthy breakfast, um, even with some, some raisins, but remember the raisins or the dried fruit does contain, um, you know, more sugar in there because when the fruit is dried and then there's less water in there, right? So it's concentrated sugar. So it's sweeter. Um, and that raises then the level of, um, grams of sugar. So hundred grams of oat bran cereal has seven to eight teaspoons. That's 31 grams of sugar. So that's over the daily limit. But again, with the oats, it's a much better choice than let's say having a donut, right? Because it will stabilize the blood sugar better. Um, also hundred grams of sugar coated cornflake cereals. Now it's just slightly higher with 35 grams of sugar, but there is actually with the cornflakes less fiber in it, right? So it may not be as helpful or optimal as the oat bran cereal is because your sugar, um, blood sugar will spike and drop very quickly with it. So although in terms of the sugar, um, there's eight to nine teaspoons, um, just, you know, one or two teaspoons more than the oat bran. Um, you have to take the whole picture into account, into account what's, what actually makes up the ingredients of the food that you're eating. You know, is it serving you or is it a disservice? And then I have granola and fruit bars, which are actually considered to be 
healthy snacks. But again, always consider what they're made of. So a four ounce granola bar, and there's no um, a listing really here, what's in here, but it has a six to seven teaspoon um, a listing of, of sugar, 29 grams of sugar. And that's a four ounce granola bar. That means with this small granola bar, you've hit your daily limit. Um, and it may or may not be filling depending on, on what else is in there. Usually it's dried fruits and nuts. Um, so it might be slightly filling with nuts. We know, um, there's fat in them. And, um, you know, if you're able to limit how much you eat of it, then, you know, it may not have so much of an impact on your calorie intake, but it may not be as fulfilling than as if you, when you would have, um, let's say potatoes. Okay. So then there is a four ounce protein bar, which contains six to seven teaspoons or 29 grams of sugar. And again, this is at your daily limit or a little bit over your, your daily limit. You have to sort of weigh the, the benefits, um, and the, disadvantages of, of the food. If it's a protein bar, you're really, really, really hungry. You need to grab something quick and you want to still your hunger so that, um, you know, you don't have a binge later, then it may be okay. You know, of course, to eat this protein bar, you have to know for yourself if it's going to be a trigger for you, or if it's going to be supportive for you until you have your next best meal. So even though you hit your daily limit, um, and remember after this protein bar, you know, natural sugars in the foods, um, for instance, in uh, sweet potatoes or in regular potatoes or in, um, you know, uh, other starchy vegetables or what have you, um, these can add up. And the World Health Organization is saying that anything over six teaspoons is too much. So this limitation that the World Health Organization is setting includes all sugars. So natural sugars and processed sugars all together. So it's good when you have this limitation to know what's best. Is it better to use up your daily limit with um, processed sugars, which will drive you to eat more of the processed sugar? Um, or does it make sense to eat more of the natural sugars and keep your da daily sugar intake low, but fill up and be satisfied with those foods instead of um, having a much greater appetite because you haven't um, satisfied your hunger and you haven't balanced your blood sugar. So unless you are eating mainly fresh produce as opposed to packaged foods or fast food meals, a lot of the food you prepare may contain a lot of sugar just from the sauces and condiments that are added. If you suspect that you are above the daily 
recommended limit of sugar intake, then reducing your sugar consumption in order to get your blood sugar levels back in balance and reduce your cravings may be the best thing you can do towards improving your health. So I'll end this episode here and we'll continue in next week's episode discussing how does sugar work against our fat loss goals? Can we satisfy our sweet tooth with foods other than refined sugar? And how do we build our meals to accommodate our sweet tooth without impacting our fat loss goals? Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, I hope that you subscribe. And if you haven't already, And please leave a review and share the podcast with a friend so that I can reach as many women as I can who may be in the menopause transition and are looking for tips and strategies to support them on their fat loss journey. I look forward to sharing another episode with you next week, part two of this episode on if a sweet tooth, if having a sweet tooth is a bad thing. Until then, stay healthy, stay blessed. And if you are menopausal with a sweet tooth, remember that guilt-free always tastes and feels better. Talk to you next week. Take care.